Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast for all things speech pathology. My name is Christy Ferrick, and I'm a member of Speech Pathology Australia, as well as of the Podcast Advisory Committee, which we like to call the Supergroup. Today, we're going to be demystifying the process of accreditation for speech pathologists within Australia. How do students enter at the beginning of a course and come out as speech pathologists ready to enter the workforce at the other? Are all university courses taught in the same way? And how would we even know? We'll also be learning more about how new graduates and their workplaces can support each other as newly qualified therapists start work for the first time. Keep listening out for helpful resources, which we'll signpost you to at the end of the podcast, all from the ever-useful Speech Pathology Australia's website. So, to get started, let me introduce you to our guests. We're incredibly lucky to have both Dr Simone Arnott and Dr Marie Atherton from Speech Pathology Australia Professional Standards Team. They're joining us today to share their knowledge of the ins and outs of accreditation. Hi, Christy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here and giving up your time. I know we're very lucky to have all your ideas and thoughts and experience about this process. So, Marie, let's start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and also what's led you to work within this area? Thanks, Christy. Um, Interesting question. Um, I have sort of, I've been practicing for many years um, as a speech pathologist prior to getting into accreditation. And I think from very early on in my career, I was interested in um, practice standards, um, the scope of practice of speech pathologists and supporting students in um, developing their competencies and skills. I've done some work, I went overseas and did a little bit of work in Vietnam to set up a program there and that was sort of an interest in professional standards um, internationally really and in in supporting programs and courses in that way. Um, When I came back to Australia, I took up a university position to help set up a um, new university program and really when the position came up at Speech Pathology Australia to, uh, I suppose, um, provide some oversight and governance and support for universities to develop their programs to support students. It just seemed like a sort of a natural progression, really. Yeah. Mm, Great. Well, that's a whole lot of experience there. Thank you, Marie. And Simone, what's your background? Thanks, Christy. Uh, Like Marie, been around for a fair while. Uh, and was initially a clinician and I set out to be the best speech pathologist in the world was my goal uh, in terms of being a clinician. So I was very focused on being a great clinician. Uh, I worked as a clinician for a number of years and still actually do do a little bit of clinical work still, but I did my PhD in stuttering a number of years ago as well and that was you know, a passion fulfilled in that space of getting to know a lot about stuttering and working with people who stutter. 
but I moved into the university sector quite early in my career because I uh, had a real passion for clinical education. I really wanted to share what it is that speech pathologists do and help speech pathologists be the best clinician in the world as well. So uh, I found myself in the university sector early working in a university clinic and then just found myself moving into different roles in the university space. So I've worked um, for almost 20 years in a, in a range of you know, lecturing, uh, doing marking, tutorials, PBL, clinical education, and um, a little over five years ago or prior to that in a national practice education coordinator, coordinator role. So that was very much um, you know, faced daily with the uh, education of students, working with practice educators and uh, being in an academic setting. So I think um, for me, this role at Speech Pathology Australia in professional standards, working mostly in accreditation, has really enabled me to continue to pursue my passion for student education, but also get my head into curricular design. So really you know, thinking about things like pedagogy, and I know that's a really strange hard word that some people might need to Google, but it, it's a fascinating space and also really hone my skills in competency development. And I love talking about competency. I love thinking about it. I love um, the fact that it happens for students so kind of seamlessly when they start a program and when they come out as a new grad. And then also as we progress through our career, we continue to enhance uh, our competencies and to grow them in different spaces. And I just think that's fabulous and amazing. And I've been able to do that at Speech Pathology Australia from a regulatory perspective, but also in the work that we do in accreditation is about you know, quality improvement and being able to educate people uh, and, and our academic colleagues and all of their key stakeholders with thinking about how can we do this stuff better to ensure that the students of the future or the speech pathologists of the future are gonna to continue to be fabulous speech pathologists in Australia. Wow, thanks Simone, that is very inspirational, thank you. So, to kick off today, let's start with the big question, which is really the big how. How are university courses accredited to train pathologists and is this decided by the universities or by SPA? So, um, SPA, like many other self-regulating health professions are recognised by the Australian government as having the authority to accredit speech pathology programs. So the government says, yes, Speech Pathology Australia can go into universities and accredit their speech pathology programs to determine whether they meet the standards that Speech Pathology Australia has set. So um, there isn't, you know, it is actually a government authority to do that. And so that means that we have to have a really rigorous process to evaluate, evaluate a program. And we look at things like governance, so how the um, program is structured and what the hierarchy is like and what supports and resources and processes and policies they have in place. Then there are all the student aspects, so how students get into a program, how they're looked after, how they know what they're gonna be doing, recruitment, retention, all of those sorts of uh, things. And then uh, probably what Marie and I are both passionate about is about the curriculum. So we look very rigorously and vigorously into what goes into the curriculum of a speech pathology program in Australia. And we compare or we look at all of those things against accreditation standards 
and Speech Pathology Australia have developed their own accreditation standards. They've done a few versions of those over the, a number of years. Uh, and at the moment, those accreditation standards align very closely with the professional standards for speech pathologists in Australia, which hopefully most of our listeners have realised is a, is a relatively new um, set of professional standards that have replaced the CBOS or the competency-based occupational standards. And the professional standards came into place in 2020, but we've uh, had to apply them to our new accreditation standards and those new accreditation standards are dated 2022. So they're still quite fresh for us. Um, and I guess in terms of how do we do it, you know, the universities and Speech Pathology Australia work together to set timelines to um, start and engage in the accreditation process. It's an ongoing cycle. So uh, it actually never ends. It's a cycle of uh, ensuring that they're continuing to meet the standards, even when they're not being accredited in that particular time zone. So there's um, annual reporting requirements, there's just sharing of information, there's education, and then it comes around every two to five years to engage in a, in a formal process of accreditation where there's a big submission of documentation. We often have lots of folders and documents all over the floor in Speech Pathology Australia office. Uh, and it looks a bit like a thesis, to be honest. It's a, it's a massive folder usually, or a massive tome of um, electronic documentation that talks about all the stuff that meet the accreditation standards. So I think the interesting part about this is that we, we talk about us being regulators and yes, we are, we are regulating uh, to ensure that students are um, graduating, ready to enter the profession. But um, we also have this really nice process at Speech Pathology Australia in terms of accreditation that enables programs to be super innovative uh, and they can have their own points of difference in a speech pathology program. They can um, know what it is that they want to achieve to meet the needs of their context or their particular university whilst all meeting the same standards. So, you know, when we open one of those big theses documents, we never quite know what to expect when we're starting to evaluate a program. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why Marie and I are very interested in this too, because we get to know um, about all of the different programs that are offered in Australia. Mm, that's great to know. Thank you. And so would it be correct to say that the process is much more collaborative than we might think at first? Yeah, I would, I would hope. So, and I'm glad that you've kind of feel that way too, because uh, collaboration is one of the, you know, the pillars um, that we build our accreditation process on. So we want it to be open, honest, transparent, collaborative. We're working with universities, not just going to the university to assess them. Um, because as I said before, it really we view this process as a quality improvement, not just a quality assurance exercise. Um, yeah, and so we, and if we weren't working closely with the universities, we wouldn't actually know what was working and what wasn't working, and we wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, ensure that our the students that are graduating are going to meet the needs of the profession, particularly moving forward, because things change, and we have to work with our universities and key stakeholders to know that our standards are actually meeting the needs of the contemporary workforce and speech pathology of the future. Mm. And, and the association is really interested and vested in universities being successful. You know, we want universities to have the best programs that they can to support the best graduates 
Um, so yeah, as Simone said, we're really into the collaboration, uh, working to support universities in whatever way possible to assist them with their, their accreditation um, and their curriculum, those sorts of things. So yeah, we sort of go in there. One of the first things we, we say is we're here in goodwill. We come in peace and it's really a, a collaborative process. Yeah. Super. It's great to hear about the outcome of really speech pathologists being ready to enter the workforce instead of things being right or wrong as, as the focus. Great. And Simone, from what you were saying earlier, it sounded that um, not all university courses would be exactly the same. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, Christy. And as I said, that's part of the thing that makes our job so interesting. But also it enables uh, prospective students to kind of choose their own adventure in a way. So you can choose a program that is more likely to suit your needs. So if you're a regional student, you might be choosing a program that might be more regional or might have a focus on a rural and or regional kind of practice rather than a metro course. You might choose a program that has got a lot of online content, for example, rather than all of the in-person content that some programs have. Uh, you know, just a, a more contemporary style of teaching, for example. Um, or perhaps, you know, I know that some programs or some universities have um, a different focus than other universities. It's just the way they're made. And so some universities will have a really big emphasis on um, research and research activity and really encouraging uh, their graduates to um, follow up and continue into higher, further higher education. And so getting additional degrees, working towards a PhD, for example, whereas other universities are really focused on ensuring that their graduates are very ready to enter the profession and be clinicians. They want them to be great clinicians and that's a real focus. Some of them work hard in, you know, they have foundation years that are interprofessional, for example, and so lots of students might, all the students in health might all do the same first year or same subjects, for example. So that might be really interesting to, to other prospective students. So I think um, the, the really nice thing about our accreditation standards is that we care about the outcome. We're looking at the end point and we're saying uh, all of the universities have to meet the same standards, but how they meet those standards is up to them. And so checkboxing per se doesn't work really very well as part of our accreditation process because there's no specifics that we're really looking for in terms of what gets put in the program, but more so that at the end, all of the students are ready to enter the profession, meaning that they can work across all areas of communication and swallowing across the lifespan. So they've got skills and knowledge and attributes that work for all um, kind of populations and um, that they've got lots of foundational skills that they can apply in any context. So no matter what placements they might have accessed or what context they might have worked in, that they're able to apply those skills, uh, knowledge and attributes in an in a, um, entry-level way to ensure that they can really hit the ground running when they enter the workforce. Great, thank you. And lots of helpful information for prospective students there too. Thank you. Now, next question was about resources. What is there out there to help universities in the process? And is it just the universities and SPA that can access this information? I'll answer that one if you like. 
Yeah, there are a range of resources that um, Speech Pathology Australia has for universities, but also information for students who are wanting to find out a bit more about perhaps where they want to study. So for universities on the website, um, there are an, uh, written resources which outline the accreditation process, they outline the standards, outline timelines. So really detailed information for a university who may be planning their first accreditation and then what's ahead once they get accredited into the future in terms of planning next accreditation, those sorts of things. So a whole lot of resources um, on the website There's um, that can be downloaded. There are videos there as well. So there's a, quite a few there of Simone and also a couple of our accreditors where they've um, you know, worked through the process, but also through the different standards and how they relate. So the professional standards and how they relate to the accreditation standards as well. So there's videos there. Um, there's always Simone or myself or someone on the end of the phone at SBA. So we're really happy to be called with any queries and to offer advice regarding the process. Um, a little bit less directly though, that we're always working with heads of programs, meeting with them, those sorts of things to talk about any potential changes or additions to the accreditation process so that universities sort of um, are, are get a jump start into having to consider any of the changes they might need to make or would like to make. Um, we also meet annually with the accreditors and we have a pool of accreditors or um, speech pathologists and academics who've, who have been trained in the accreditation standards and in the accreditation process. Um, so we have a, an annual meeting to talk about the year, to exchange ideas, find about you know, challenges, things that worked well, things that may need changing. And, as Simone indicated, you know, we're still looking at the standards, the accreditation standards and finding things that might need fine tuning or tweaking. And we do that in consultation with our accreditors as well. You know, we don't want accreditation to be secret business. Uh, it, it's not, you know, we've started this podcast talking something about, you know, um, what's kind of behind the scenes and the, the myths, et cetera, of, or demystifying accreditation. And I, I think our resources help to do that. That's the intent, that they demystify it. Um, because often we find that people have had accreditation experiences from either working in a hospital or maybe they've, um, you know, working in different roles, not even as a speech pathologist, and they hear about this scary term called accreditation. And it, it conjures up all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, Marie and I always say we've sat on both sides of the accreditation table because we've been academics as well and have been um, on the other end of accreditation. And so we really want to demystify it, not make it secret business and ensure that everybody's got access to the same resources. Um, and that's the thing that we've done probably differently to some um, some professions is that it's a one-stop shop for everybody. So when you go to the accreditation page on the Speech Pathology Australia website, that's what everybody uses. Uh, there, there are no secret documents. Uh, everything we use is actually there. So, and everyone's welcome to have a look through. And whilst it sounds like it's a dry area, it's really can be really interesting to say, what is it the speech pathology programs are meant to be kind of teaching and what are they teaching and how, how do they get the message across so that students become speech pathologists by the end? Great. Well, certainly sounds like there's a lot of support and information out there. And 
Also, great reminder that you guys are there at the end of a phone to discuss questions too. No, we're very lucky to have. Now, we've already talked a little bit about this, but how does the process evolve and change as actually the profession itself often is changing and updating and evolving? Um, how is that ma managed? That's a, a really interesting question, Christy, because yes, the profession is evolving and changing um, a lot. And um, Simone just before mentioned about the professional standards. So previously, we had a different set of standards or guidelines um, for practice of speech pathology in Australia. But now that scope of practice, what speech pathologists do is changing so much that it required a different approach to describing uh, what speech pathologists do. So we, the scope of practice document was developed to reflect this change. And along with that, the new professional standards came out, which defined speech, patho speech pathology practice in a modern sense. And that meant that the accreditation standards had to change as well, because the accreditation standards previously reflected um, the older way in which we characterise speech pathology practice. But with all these new domains of practice, areas of practice, the accreditation standards had to reflect what the scope of practice was telling us about what speech pathologists were doing in Australia. So they sort of, the accreditation standards sort of moving um, in unison with the professional standards and what we do. Mm -hmm. Great to have that responsive um, system there. Yeah. And I know that as a clinician myself, I do feel lucky to be working in such a kind of a wide uh, ranging profession, but one that's also updating too. Mm. So last question for this section, what would happen if hopefully in a very unlikely event, if a university lost their accreditation, what would happen there? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. And actually one that People often ask Christy when they go to the website and they see programs that aren't accredited yet because they might be new programs or they know accreditation's coming up in the term of their enrolment. They want to know what will happen if a university wasn't successful. So, you know, I'm pleased to say my time at SPA and my time even working as an academic, it's actually happened very, very, very infrequently. So we have high quality programs in Australia that are very rigorously governed um, and well delivered programs. So on the whole, we are incredibly fortunate and able at Speech Pathology to say, Australia to say it hardly ever happens. Um, but with that, I think, uh, as um, Marie said before, Speech Pathology Australia actually wants all programs to be successful in this accreditation process. And obviously, so do the universities. The universities do not want to be unsuccessful. There's a whole um, host of unfortunate consequences that can happen if a university program is unsuccessful in being accredited. So everyone works together to um, minimise the chance of that happening. And that's, you know, doing asking questions of SPA, doing regular check-ins. We, we review annual reports every year from the universities to see, you know, that mostly things are on track and that we don't have extra questions, etc. Um, however, if a program doesn't hasn't met the standards, uh, those standards are really clearly identified. So which areas are the areas that need to be modified, changed, added, 
edited, etc., um, and what require what evidence would be required to enable that university program to meet the standards. So it becomes very explicit of what needs to be done. Um, and then the universities get to decide, not SPA, whether or not they want to proceed with meeting those areas of shortfall. So, and, and if they do decide to proceed to fix those areas of shortfall, how long they need to do that. And so for that period, the program would be unaccredited or not accredited. And once the university then goes, yep, we're ready to be reaccredited. We think we've we think we've got it right. We've um, checked all those boxes for you and have the appropriate evidence. We would come back in and reaccredit the program. Um, and in all cases so far, those programs have successfully met the standards um, when we've come back to review them. So, uh, you know, in each case that I know of, the students have been able to graduate as speech pathologists and have been eligible to be members um, of Speech Pathology Australia once the shortfalls were addressed by the university. So, um, so there has, in each case that I'm aware of, been a good news story at the end because of that collaboration, I think. And just um, as Marie said before, the word goodwill, the universities usually, when you've got a program that's teaching health, we really want to be getting more work workforce. You know, we want to be creating the speech pathologists of the future and the universities are, are pretty committed to seeing that be their end point. Great. Sounds like another good example of working together and collaboratively. Thanks. So for the next section, let's move to talking about newly graduated therapists entering the workforce, which I think is going to be a big topic for lots of people coming the end of the year. So you very helpfully talked about how the universities are accredited, but how does the system make sure that the students are then ready to enter the profession and practice across that wide scope of speech pathology work? Um, thanks, Chrissy. Yeah, great question. Um, because yes, we have all these processes in place, but the bottom line is that we want to make sure that students and well, new graduates are prepared to practice in a really diverse and complex environment. So. I suppose the first thing to say is that the accreditation process has checks and balances and systems in place to ensure that um, there's relevant governance over the programs that are being um, delivered and there are assessments and procedures in place that support um, strong coverage of communication swallowing across the lifespan. So we want to ensure, we, we want graduates to come out with um, knowledge and skills that about the range of practice and different areas of practice in speech pathology and that the, the way that they're taught and assessed is very um, rigorous and has oversight and governance. So, so that's one of the processes that we're interested in. Um, what was the other part of your question, Christy? Um, I guess it's a question for me as a supervisor. Um, what can I expect from a newly qualified pathologist entering the workforce that might not have had all of the experiences um, mm. with every single client mm. Um, mm. group they're working with? Mm. We would expect them to have foundational knowledge and skills that allows them to um, work with any individual with a communication or swallowing need. And so those sort of foundational skills that we're really interested in are things like uh, reflective practice, lifelong learning, being able to transfer skills from one scenario to another, 
being able to see synergies between uh, knowledge and skills. Um, those sorts of things, because we can't um, ensure that students are going to see every different type of person um, and, and, and have confidence with dealing every type of person, but we do expect students to know um, where to go and find knowledge and skills and to be thinking about, well, what, what do I have in my toolkit already from my studies that I can apply in a new situation? Simone, did you want to add to that? I was just reflecting actually on when we were uh, creating the new accreditation standards and we had uh, a, a big focus group of people talking to us about what they want universities to teach and what's, you know, what's essential and what's nice to have, etc. And they weren't all academics. We had like lots of people from the field and students and new grads and all sorts of things. Um, but, you know, they were saying we want, we, we know that universities can't teach everything. Of course they can't. So what are those non-negotiables? And uh, our focus groups really wanted to know that students had been taught a lot of content. They wanted them to have knowledge to draw on. So not, again, not about everything, but things like anatomy and physiology are actually really important so that students kind of have got a sense of, oh, yeah, that's somewhere about there and I can dig into my atlas or my... Um, you know, whatever you dig into these days when you don't have, we had a massive book that had photos of body parts in it, but I'm sure now you just get on the internet. Um, you know, that students can go, right, yeah, I've got something to draw on, to lean on in terms of my knowledge, in terms of anatomy and physiology, but also the way in like linguistics um, and word structure and function and then neurology, all those sorts of things so that they can kind of lean on some knowledge. And that was really, really important for our focus group, um, as opposed to saying students had to have experiences in every different area, like a placement in every area. And certainly recognising that a student who perhaps hasn't had a hospital experience is no less qualified per se to work in a hospital when they graduate because they've got a whole range of skills and knowledge and attributes that they can draw on. So the programs are really designed now to be doing that and that's that's what we want um, the students to, to know about, how they uh, integrate their knowledge and can apply their knowledge in unfamiliar spaces and um, how the university teaches them to do that. Nice. And actually, Simone, as part of the process, we talked previously and you gave this really nice example about reframing a question um, for interviews, which I thought was helpful for people asking the question, but also people answering it too. Could you tell us a bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, that that came from, I guess we have lots of students or new grads who say, oh, you know, they they asked me stuff that I that I didn't know. You know, I went to an interview and I just, I'd never seen a client like that before and I just didn't know what to say. Or um, equally having an employer say, well, we would have expected that the student would have come across this before and we asked them about it in an interview and they, they'd never seen a client with X. So, you know, they hadn't seen a client with a cleft palate before. That's a bit unusual. And so um, what we're really trying to foster is um, enabling new graduates and interviewees, I guess, to assist each other to explore what is known, you know, what, what knowledge uh, a new grad has and to help them to access that. Because obviously when everyone's nervous and they're new, whether it's an interview or not, it might just be a supervision session or where they get a referral for something that's unfamiliar. So um, I think 
making sure that questions aren't just, you know, what facts do you know, but rather um, what, what have you experienced or what could you draw on that might help you get to the answer? Not just do you know the answer, but what can you draw on to help you find the answer? So, um, you know, if you were going to an interview and it had a question like, how would you approach a referral for a client with a cleft palate, for example, um, you know, what do you know about this type of presentation? That's very much a fact finding, you know, like, what do you know about this? And for a new grad, they might say, oh my gosh, I've never had a client with a cleft palate before. I, I don't know if I can answer the question. So, you know, instead you could try something like, oh, if you were referred a client with a cleft palate and you've never seen a child with a cleft before, where might you start? So what knowledge or experiences might you be able to draw on to help you find how you would approach that? Um, or what might you be able to apply from other experiences that you've had that might um, you know, make sense in this particular scenario? So rather than just making it a Q&A session or a Q&A interview, sort of finding out what those approaches are that your new grad or that your interviewee might already have in their toolkit that just needs to be um, pulled out and, and helping them to, encouraging them to look deep and think about application, not just, I've got the answer. Because, you know, of course, Christy, I could probably, I, I know you work in paediatrics um, now, so you would probably know the answer to this cleft palate scenario. But if I was to ask you to see an adult client and you hadn't worked in an adult space for a long time, your brain would straight away be going tick, tick, tick. Okay, like I, I know how to work with um, adults because actually all my kids come in with a, with a carer who's an adult and I know what sort of language changes I might use and I know how to conduct a case history and I know how I'm going to manage my files because that's going to be the same process uh, and I know how to do Google Scholar and I know how to use um, you know, resources on a website to find some of the answers and I also have a mentor who I can ask or a supervisor that I can ask for support. So I think we've got so much in our toolkits and uh, but new graduates in particular are a bit hesitant to use their toolkit sometimes because sometimes it's of the questions, because of the questions we ask them. We're asking the wrong questions. We're asking for a Q&A and a checkbox as opposed to an exploration of knowledge and skills that are foundationally there. They just need to be drawn out. And I also would add to that in saying that, you know, students or um, new graduates are reluctant sometimes to to blow their own trumpet about those those skills. You know, they'll say, oh, there hasn't been a job that I, I feel that I'm experienced enough for or I have any skills in. So there's a role there for association universities to really, you know, um, make it clear to, to, to students that they have this huge toolkit of skills that are very transferable. And, you know, thinking around, well, here comes a job, it sounds really interesting, I'd like to apply for it. I do have skills that I can use in this job and feeling comfortable and confident to be able to articulate about those skills in that situation. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. And it's nice to think about the, the tweaking of words or the reframing to make sure that yeah, newly qualified practitioners can draw upon those skills and hopefully empower them to, to think about the skills and abilities that they do have. Thank you. And I was just thinking then about um, 
are um, therapists who work in rural and remote areas. I know we talked about this um, before. How does um, this model of using taught skills and attributes rather than focusing purely on experience, um, how does that play out for them? I, I, think... I would have thought in a similar way. Yeah. Sorry, we're talking over each other because we're both nodding at the same time going, mm. <laughs> it's, it's almost identical, isn't it, Marie, with that sense of, okay, what do you know um, and how could you apply it? I think the difference for um, graduates who are working or any speech pathologist actually who's working in a remote or rural area is that they're more likely to see a really broad range of clients um, or, or working with individuals and communities who are very disparate from one another. So you're more likely to have to be um, across a whole range of more of the scope of speech pathology practice. And so uh, I, I would really be encouraging people who are working in those spaces to be even more dedicated to ensuring that they've got a range of support people uh, in place and around them. Probably, um, you know, one one person isn't going to be enough. They might need to have lots of different people from um, the broad range of speech, speech pathology services to ensure that they've got the supports that they need to be working in such a um, diverse environment. And, I, and the association also has a range of resources to support, you know, clinicians or practitioners, whether they're new graduates or not so new. And I think, you know, they're relevant regardless of where you work, but particularly in rural, remote areas where that, you know, contact or connection with people um, might be limited. So, you know, the association has some statements or position statements around the value of professional supervision, support and mentoring. And that applies to whether you're first year out or 10 years out, those sorts of things. Um, in our professional practice education resources on the website, a huge range of resources um, in terms of you know, um, organisations to contact, contact um, you know, people who are offering mentoring, um, just resources on the, on the website. So um, there is that support from the association. It's getting on the website and having a look through. Um, but I think mentoring, access to mentoring and supervision is critical. And, and I think that's just part of your professional practice now and, and the association acknowledges um, the value of that in its position statement about that. Absolutely. Okay. And you know, that's not just for new graduates. Gosh, um, you know, I, I love my mentoring sessions. I look forward to them. I have lists of things that I want to discuss, uh, but I've had a range of different mentors over my years as well, because you have different needs as your career uh, ebbs and flows and changes. So um, I think there's, there's sort of been an understanding, uh, a misunderstanding that mentoring and supervision is just for newbies. Um, and it's absolutely not. I, I think it's so critical as we um, traverse our careers. And particularly, as we are saying before, the scope of speech pathology is so broad um, that actually we venture into new grounds often through our careers, which is so exciting, but it means that we often need to pick up extra help uh, as we travel along. And Simone, uh, Marie already touched on it before, but where should we go if we really need some key documents um, to start being a supervisor or for a newly qualified pathologist and having a bit of a um, panic about where to start? 
Good question, Christy. And of course, there's lots of different information on the Speech Pathology Australia website, which has recently been updated. So if you can't find what you're looking for, don't be surprised, it will be in a different place. Uh, but there is a search uh, section that works well. So you can type into their early career support and there's a whole range of different resources under that tab. Some of them um, will obviously be adding more and more information to these tabs and populating them more as we go along. But there's information such as supervision and mentoring, and that's for everybody, not just for uh, an early career speech pathologist, but also if you want to be a supervisor or a mentor, all those links go to a similar place. Um, things like early career community, so enabling the early career speeches to get together um, and to create, they've got a community where they can chat together, um, as well as a whole host of other early, um, early career and supervisor resources on that page, because we're assuming um, that that's a good place for people who want to be a supervisor to also go and have a look. Um, now, that's not meaning supervisors of uh, students in speech pathology programs. If you want to be a um, practice educator, professional practice educator, then that uh, the best way to do that is to go via your local university or a university you'd like to be working with or for. So, um, and I can help you to get those links should you need them. But yep, certainly the early career support page will be uh, a page of fun facts and helpful resources for most of our listeners. Great, early career support. Thanks, Simone. And last question. Before we, before we wrap up today, what about if we have a particular question or something else we'd like to follow up with from the podcast today? What could we do about that? As um, I mentioned before, Simone um, in particular is always on the end of the phone. Um, uh, we're accessible by, by email. So um, please get in touch if you have a question. Um, sometimes it's easier to call because sometimes sometimes the uh, concepts or ideas or questions are a little bit more complex than they might seem when we first when you first think of a question to ask. So yeah, either give us a call or, or email, and um, we try to respond in a really timely manner because we know that when people contact us, they're looking for some answers so that so generally they can progress what they're doing around accreditation or as students, or as new grads. Great, thank you. Well, we're certainly very lucky to have you guys at the end of the phone. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving up your time. Um, I've certainly learned a lot from talking to you guys and certainly have tips and tweaks that I can make to my own practice to take away from this, so thank you. It is really great to hear about how the process is collaborative and responsive to the needs of our profession. So that's the end of our Speak Up podcast today. Please do check out the resources which we've signposted here and please do get in touch with either Marie or Simone if you have any further questions. Because as you heard, they would love to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.